This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Wondering where to go on your vacation? Plan ahead with up-to-the-minute information in the Sunday Journal American's Midsummer Vacation Issue. Whether you decide on a vacation at home or abroad, here are the tips you need on where to go and how to get there. See the resort and travel pages in Sunday's Journal American. WOR AM and FM New York. When it comes to covering political conventions, there's more going on than meets the eye. Out in San Francisco, conventions fall before the wit of Walter Kiernan. That's news, that's radio, that's WOR, your RKO general station in New York. That they don't dare to report. It hangs on the edge of the precipice. Everywhere, the great frozen food department of the universe, with its frozen broccoli, its frozen minute steaks of passion, hangs in the balance. Waiting, waiting for the symbolic horn to call them forward to... Once more, Marty. Very good. They wait for their cue. All of mankind has always been waiting for its cue. Have you ever had the feeling that you are some forgotten actor in a gigantic pageant where everybody has great lines and a fantastic script and you have been just told to get out and ad-lib? And they say, ad-lib on cue? And then they forget to tell you what the cue is? And it seems that all the rest of them got the cue? You know, there was a point in time when Robert Moses was just a little baby. A little tiny baby, a little seven and a half pound bit of human flotsam floating on the great sea of life. And around them, growing up at the same time, were thousands of little bits of human flotsam. He got the cue. <laughs> and all the rest are just paying their way through the turnstile to buy those rubber hot dogs that weak that weak root beer and to stand in line before the bell telephone exhibit where even the phones don't work yeah did I tell you that I stood in line I finally got in there and they had this big thing about phones and it says pick up a phone and hear the story of bell telephone service and I picked up the phone and it wasn't working I'm serious there was a little sign it was temporarily out of order Wait till they hang that sign on the earth. <laughs> All right, gang, here comes your cue. Excelsior, you have Very good, very good. We're back here at the limelight. And where is the limelight, friends? In the village. In the village. <laughs> We're here in the limelight in the heart of Circleville, Ohio, friends. Yes, where east meets west and where coal meets iron and where all folks are happy tonight, down at the limelight, right at the corner of 7th and Main. If you're listening, drive straight out the Ohio Turnpike, turn left at the Indiana Turnpike, cross the state of West Virginia and head down and then turn left again at Indianapolis and you're there! Hey! Well, I don't know, you know, it's funny, since we're now here dealing with 
a great national election which is about to occur. Maybe I shouldn't tell you the next incident that occurred in my somewhat spotty education in existence. A few years later, after I left the employ of Smoking Joe, <laughs> and I had learned that right doesn't necessarily make might. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, I certainly learned that. You notice this, how my, this ear here is lower than the other one? <laughs> I'll never forget one night I'm on the air doing a show, and the, the program, I thought it was a fantastic show, and the program director came in and grabbed this one and pulled it down. And he said, look out, Smokey's listening tonight. And he's been listening ever since. And I don't know whether or not to tell you this story, but in that same radio station where the program director came in and grabbed the whole of my cauliflower ear and let me know who was boss, there was a great election. You see, all of us in radio and in television have lived through these events far more dynamically than the reader or the listener or the viewer does. You know, after all, you're out there fooling around all the time and trying to get the car door work. And, you know, you mess around at Needix and all those places. And all the while, we're out there dealing with life and facts. We're trying to get to the candidates. We're trying to get to where the crash occurred. We're trying to be where the occasion is occasioning. Always. That is our whole world, you see. And so after a while, you learn something that the public never quite does learn. So many things are incredibly accidental. Do you realize that the men that are running for president can never really tell you how they got there? I mean, really, Johnson, you know, President Johnson was just a school teacher. He's down there trying to teach algebra to a bunch of knuckleheads. And a whole lot of little things fit together, and the next thing you know, he's the president. That is a fantastic thing. I mean, one of the leading candidates was operating a dry goods department in a, in a big store. And the next thing you know, millions of people are listening to him. Goldwater. Oh, really? I'm serious. And suddenly he becomes a man who seems to know all about the world. A whole series of fantastic accidents go together. We all start out, you know, kind of fat and full. All babies are fat, you know. Fat and rubbery. And, you know, kind of wet. And squishy. And smelly. And life consists and this is, this is something nobody wants to believe, really. It consists of a whole series of inexplicable accidents that lead finally, inevitably, to wherever you happen to be at this instant. Now, you don't know what accidents are going to occur to you between now and the next two weeks that will lead you where. What brought you here, you know? A whole bunch of funny little things. You could have been at Sardi's, where it's really happening. Look at you. I could have been on The Tonight Show. I could have been born Johnny Carson with talent. <laughs> Either that or a good agent. I don't know which. You know. That is talent, I guess. But look, at here I am down here deep in the bowels of Greenwich Village. Down here in the lower elementary canal. Down here at the limelight. 
trying to fight my way through this eternal, gigantic, caro syrup sea of existence, <laughs> swimming underwater like all the rest of us in a sort of loose formation, by the way, <laughs> called mankind. And the rest of those guys, the great accidents happen. The great, fantastic accidents. Well, I, you know, the little man, all of us, and I think this plays a great role in accidents and in elections and in history. The little man always feels bugged. He always feels as though he really got the business. That the breaks never happened. He ne the accidents never occurred to him. And so he really gets teed off at the guys to whom they apparently did. And so he plots. He plots constantly. Have you ever noticed out there at Yankee Stadium? Why do they boo Roger Maris? Well, they boo him because he hit 61 homers. They never booed Hank Fowler, a good solid 230 hitter all his life. Yeah, they loved him. He was one of them, you know? Let me tell you, if one Met all of a sudden hits 73 homers next year, they're going to be on him. I mean, really, seriously, you really get bugged. And so all of us sit, you know, watching the various candidates, and no matter what our party is, we're kind of teed off. You ever notice that the minute a, a president gets in, everybody starts yelling right away? After Five minutes after he's in, yeah, you didn't keep your promises, you bum. Yeah, bum. Yeah. You know, five minutes after after the late President Kennedy was in, the first anti-Kennedy cartoons appeared in The Voice. <laughs> five minutes. He, he just raised his hand, put it down, and they're writing already, you know. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, another thing, too, uh, I, I suspect that the largest percentage of people always feel guilty as though they feel they don't deserve the breaks. <laughs> the average guy feels, I'm rotten, I shouldn't get the breaks. Although he pretends, you know. He really does. He pretends that, that that isn't so. Then there is a second group who feels it is a pure, beautiful group to whom the breaks should have happened. These are the guiltless. <laughs> These are the people who feel absolutely no guilt at all. And they become liberals, usually. <laughs> boy, oh boy, each one of them thinks secretly that he should have been president. By the way, I'm a liberal. <laughs> Just to make sure that you know where I stand, you know. The minute you make a crack about a liberal, everybody says, uh-oh, a John Bircher. <laughs> you know, it's a fascinating problem. But I can remember one of the great movements that a little man made against the fantastic giant man who had achieved the eminence of all the breaks. The man on the pinnacle. I'm working in a radio station. And the guy who owned the radio station, very remotely, you know, it was one of these big families where they own a whole state, you know, like, have you noticed that almost all candidates own a lot of stuff these days? I'm telling you, Lincoln would be thrown out just on the fact that he was a rail splitter. Who listens to guys that rail splitter for crying out? Who listens to that? I'm serious. In our time, we really do believe that men who have made it financially somehow have a firm grasp on good and evil and are deep thinkers. I'm afraid Smokey Joe was before his time. 
By the way, he was very rich. <laughs> so one time in this radio station, which was owned, like I say, by one of the big candidates, this was a man that was running for president. Really? His name is in history. And he was running for president. He was running for all kinds of big offices. But you know how it is when you work in an office. You hate the boss. <laughs> and every last guy in the radio station hated this guy's tiniest entrail. <laughs> and once in a while, there would be a sign would appear on the bulletin board. It would say such things as company picnic. Mr. Watanabe will appear for a brief address. <laughs> Your boss. And all the while we're down in the salt mine slaving and picking away and chopping at the coal, making it possible for him to go on. And there was a slow building up of hate. Not really hate, kind of resentment. You know how most of us feel. We've got it. But very few of us can ever do anything about it except to walk around and say, Ah, that bomb! Hey, and by the way, I wonder how many people pretend that they're going to vote for one guy and when they get in that thing, you know, with the curtain, they... <laughs> yeah, you know, they walk around and then they, then they sit there in front of their TV set and look worried when the returns are coming in and say, I don't know. Boy, I'm telling you, those polls are really nutty, aren't they? Those polls are really nutty. I'll bet a lot of the people they ask lie to them. Boy. And there sits the liar there watching TV. Well, seriously, this is a problem, really. Well, here we are, our candidate. And we're all loyal. You see, we're supposed to be all absolutely loyal to this man. We had all taken pledges of loyalty. We all had that proper scrub look on our face, you know, when the boss is up. And I'll never forget the day the boss came in. And he said, men, he said, you realize that we're on the eve of a very important election. And we're all one happy family here. And when I get elected, it's all of you getting elected. It's all the things that we stand for, you and me. We're all sitting there. We remember the eight last strikes where nobody got a cent raise. They took the water cooler out, you know. Now, believe me, it's these issues that settle the whole world issues. Just say, oh, you, yeah, yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. And he says, now, I, I'm going out. I'm going out to get elected, I hope. And I want to know that all of my men, my men who've been with me since I was a little man, are still with me. Right, men? Give me a cheer. You'll hear how it sounds. Hooray! Isn't that a sincere cheer? <laughs> well, anyway, we walked out, you know, and that was the end of that. Now, he broadcast his speeches through a network that was connecting the entire Midwest. And these speeches were fed through the big national hookups, you know, NBC, CBS. Perhaps you don't know that some little radio station way out in the hinterlands is feeding to the entire nation the speech by Mr. Goldwater or Mr. Scranton. Mr. Johnson, two little local announcers and one little local engineer, right, Tony, are sitting way down there at the base of it all. Now, you kind of think, I suppose, that it's NBC or CBS. No, there are two little guys sitting in the corner just like this.
sneaky little guys. Well, if Tony is feeding this, you see, you notice Tony is picking this up here. He's feeding it back to the studio. I'm going to explain this to you technically. We feed the remote back to the studio, and at the studio, there is another innocent guy sitting by a control board. Who is it, Tony? Who? Pat? Oh, yeah, Matt's down there. Well, he's not so innocent. I know him. <laughs> Very bad man. I don't know whether this is getting out or not tonight. And he then feeds it out to the transmitter. See, there's just a couple of guys. The public never sees them. And they got sitting next to him these things right here. See, that's a turntable. Sitting right there. Looks very innocent, doesn't it? Well, our candidate was speaking from a city 150 miles from our station. It was being fed back on a telephone line to our little radio station and then fed to the gigantic network all the way across the world. It was being fed to the armed forces. They bought the whole world that night. They had. It was the big radio broadcast. And the candidate was appearing in an auditorium that was filled with partisans, all of his, you see. And he was giving his speech. And we're sitting back in the control room, 200 miles away. We're not hearing a great man of history. We're hearing the guy that took the water cooler out. You know? And did that stuff with the vacation schedule. And so we're sitting there, and he is, he says, I am, I'm here tonight. And he had this nice, dry voice of a man of reason and intellect. I'm here tonight speaking on the eve of a great election as a simple American who wants to see that justice and freedom exist for all men. And we can think of that water cooler. Justice and freedom, you know, he knows about it. Justice and freedom. And with that, there was a fantastic, Ray! you know, the crowd is cheering. And, you can hear, and, and we're sitting there listening to those guys. Listen to those nuts. Cheering that guy, that idiot. Ray! They cheer. And all of a sudden, my engineer gets up all by himself. He walks into the next room where we had a great big file cabinet full of transcriptions. He pulls one out, and there they are, all lined up. It says, angry crowd, <laughs> automobile accident. I'm telling you, this is what he did. And so he takes one big transcription out, out of our sound effects library, and he lays it on the table, and he just sits there. And the great man went on. And he says, and so as I stand before you tonight on the eve of this great election, I am asking the support of all good Americans everywhere. Hooray! And then he quickly puts it on. And you can hear in the crowd all of a sudden, boo, boo, boo. He had put a record on that was labeled 600 angry revolutionaries attacking the palace. And, and it was fantastic. It sped all over, you know. And every time he would open his trap, you'd hear three or four little cheers, and you'd hear this, Boo! Kill him! Boo! You phony! You bomb! Boo! Boo! And once in a while, you hear a little sound of a machine gun. <laughs> well, it was the greatest political speech in history. 
And two nights later, I'll tell you another little thing. Two nights later, the same candidate was speaking. Only this time, it was the announcing department's turn to get in its licks. And there was an announcer sitting in the standby booth, just sitting in there, see, and he's listening. And the candidate is going on. You know, and political speakers rarely really know how to speak the way an actor knows how to speak. I think, I think the next generation, and this is a showbiz generation, is going to elect Laurence Olivier. <laughs> you know, really, I'm serious. I think, I think this generation really would, would love to... Yeah, Richard Burton, you know, they... They seriously think that we should have Alec Guinness running the U.N. And somehow it'd all fit. You know, they remember the Colonel and the Bridge on the River Kwai and all that stuff. And they try to get, if they could, Elia Kazan to direct operations down there. Well, here is the candidate speaking. He can't speak very well, and he has these great pauses that denote an honest man fumbling for words in his soul. Of course, they were all written down. I remember his scripture would say, pause. <laughs> Little thing would say, fumble for word. <laughs> oh, yeah, you'd be surprised. Then it would say, it would say, voice crack at this point. You ought to see candidates working on a voice crack. Oh, yes, you know, that tear that comes in the voice when they're talking about something real and honest, see. So the candidate gets on that night, and he was on. He was really good that night. And he was talking in a nasal voice. And he says, And I believe that all men who are Americans, who really understand America, who feel that the American way of life is the greatest way of life. And we knew there was a pause. It says, fumble for words here. My announcer friend at that point would lean forward into the microphone and go... <laughs> fed all over the world a big juicy sniff and then he would go on you see he says and I say and somehow you got you got this image of this sniveling snaggle tooth man with a runny nose you know standing And he would, he would, he would put, go a little further, you see, and my friend would go a little further, see, and my friend would lean forward, and as he would give another one of his pregnant pauses, he would click his teeth in the mic. It sounded like his dentures were loose. And slipping around, you know. Well, all I got to say is that this candidate lost by a landslide. <laughs> But, but these, these stories, you see, I'm sure that a lot... Oh, by the way, speaking of landslides and slipping dentures, what radio station is this, gang? <laughs> yes, and I wonder what the announcer back at the studio is doing right now. In what town? New Rochelle. <laughs> All right. Now, the point that, is, that, I, that I want to make here is that elections swing on things as simple as that. And they swing. There, there's, there's a whole atmosphere in the world that creates the world we live in. And no one knows it's there. 
You don't know it, you know. Believe me, the, the, in any great movement, no one is aware of it. Do you think that at the time of the Renaissance, guys were walking around saying, gee, isn't it great to be in the Renaissance? <laughs> yeah. All the lights are on now, you know. We can... Do you really believe that a guy living in the dark ages walked around, geez, I wish they'd turn on the lights. You know? <laughs> Certainly rotten to be living in the dark ages, you know. And I'm sure that we all believe that a caveman knew he was a caveman. You know, he says, well, shut up, will you? Og? After all, it's only the Stone Age. You don't expect me to think, do you? <laughs> No, no, we don't know. We never know what age we're in. It's only later on, when the historians write it up, then the ages become known for what they are, like the knothead age, which we could be very well be living in, you know. The mashed potatoes age. Incidentally, can you imagine a guy writing a historical novel about our time 400 years from now, you know, we always invest the past with fantastic glamour. Oh, yes. I mean, how many times have you seen these covers? It's, you know, it shows a guy with a, with a, with a buskin and a bucklet and a flubman. And he's got the leather garments and he's got this big sword and this big plume. And it says, Lance Courtenay, striding through the swirling, turbulent 17th century. Yeah. You know, we always do that swirling, turbulent, exciting, gay, fantastic, decadent 17th century. And can you imagine them writing a historical novel about you? Charles Witherspoon, striding through the swirling, turbulent, gay, exciting, decadent life of the 20th century. And it shows you in native costume of the period, in your glamorous wash and wear suit. You know, Striding into the limelight. <laughs> a historical member of a historical period in time where things were happening and the world was in ferment. And a man was a man in those days. And you know, that's what they're going to do. They're going to read this and they're going to say, oh boy. <sighs> men were men then. Somehow we're going to have to hide the truth from them, you know. <laughs> have you been out here on Greenwich lately, friends? I don't know what that cheer is about. For or against? Which is it? Hey, what? Oh, oh, hear that? <laughs> that high falsetto voice from the bar? <laughs> Some guys got rimless glasses on their souls when they're born. <laughs> well, I believe that here we are, you know, we never quite know what the world is going to be like or how it's going to be judged a thousand years from now. Do you, can you really believe that all those nobles sitting around signing the Magna Carta <laughs> knew that they were creating the Ed Sullivan Show? <laughs> Could they really have forecast Jack Parr when they're sitting there signing this thing? And incidentally, how about all those guys walking around with the, with the leather pants, the peasants at that time, you know, with the sheepskin coats, and all these guys are sitting down there signing the big Magna Carta, and one says to the other, let's go down there, signing the Magna Carta, Wamba. 
with the iron ring, you know, and all the business around here. And he's got this big dog named Wolf or Fang. And the other one says, oh, they're just politicians. I wouldn't go near that stuff. I don't care for that kind of stuff. And incidentally, I think most of us miss the great historical occasions of our time. Really, I, I really believe this, that most of us go to the wrong places. Can you imagine back in the 1920s in Germany? Here they're sitting around the family. You know, they got a bunch of, well, you know, they got the sauerkraut out and the hot dogs and somebody's sitting there with the, you know, they got the red cabbage and the goose is going and they got the beer. And somebody says, hey, listen, how about going tonight, Doc? I have an idea. Let's go down and hear that nut down at the Hofbräu house. That sick comic that's working down there. And somebody says, oh, no, I wouldn't waste my time. This stuff, these fads come and go. That's ridiculous stuff. I'm going down to the opera where the real stuff is happening. And all the while down there is this guy standing up on top of the table. And he's going, hey, and nobody's listening. No, seriously, that's what happened to him. Nobody listened. I don't think many of us actually ever can understand, many of us, any of us, what we're involved in, if anything. But little sneaky suspicions come through. Yesterday in the New York Times, there appeared a piece which I conveniently brought with me on this eve. And it's just a little piece, you know, it appears back on page 79, underneath the listings of the ships leaving and going. <laughs> you know, the SS Rotterdam and the SS African Queen and all that stuff. It says here, you see, because the world is literally a piece. The Renaissance affected all men all over the world. It wasn't just Italy, you know. It was everywhere. And so it is, our world is our world everywhere in the world. Listen to this great heading. Mexican Museum erects huge idol erects huge idol and under it is the subheading interest in ancient rain god overshadows elections <laughs> doesn't that sound familiar <laughs> now listen to this now wait don't laugh wait do you hear how it goes further on I suspect that giant stone idols are always elected. Listen, this is an election year in Mexico, and logically the capital should be concerned with politics. Instead, the attention has been stolen by a great, silent, stone idol. I love that word, silent. Stone idol. The 167-ton pre-Columbian rain and water god, Tlaloc, has finally come to rest in the heavily fortified foundations of the new National Museum of Anthropology. It took more than 
Two months of travel and engineering to move it from its resting place of centuries outside of Mexico City and finally set it feet first on its concrete base. How many centuries it had rested lying on its back, no one knows. Just laying there, looking up at the sky, a great stone idol. It could, go, it could go back to at least the third or fourth century, before Christ, and possibly further. On the night the rain god reached Mexico City, the capital was inundated with the heaviest cloudburst recorded in years. Put that in your cynical pipe and smoke it. And they tell you not to worship idols, huh? Aha! Maybe you've been getting the wrong word, wise guys. Since then, storms and enormous squalls have been daily occurrences. Yeah. Great amount of newsprint has been used up in the press explaining the phenomenon, or in the case of wise guy cartoonists and columnists having a circus with the ancient god. Isn't that so like man? Really? I wonder how many disbelievers are in the crowd here tonight who say, oh, come on, I don't believe in that stuff. What would we do if 15 minutes after we leave the limelight, a gigantic male fist came out of the cloud bearing thunderbolts and destroyed Darien? Boom! As a starter. You know, wouldn't that be a great news item for Lyle Van on the human side of the news? Tonight, a great male fist came out of the clouds and destroyed Darien. And now the weather. Uh, the stock market continued uneven today. Now, we laugh at this sort of thing. You know, you know the, 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 ancient, the ancient Greeks were forever looking up and seeing giant chariots crossing the sky. Now, this is a Saturday night, you know. It's a nervous night, Saturday. Oh, yeah. There's plenty of plans in this crowd tonight. There's a lot of nervousness about it, too, I might add. Yeah. Tomorrow is Sunday. There's going to be a lot of guys laying on their backs out there, just flat out on Jones Beach, looking up at the sky. You know, the sand is there in the ocean. Everything's under control. They got the little transistor radio there, and they're listening to the Yankees belt somebody out at the stadium, and Mel Allen is talking away there. And all the Ballantine men. Have you seen those Ballantine commercials with those nutty people on those picnics and that? Did you ever see a more manic crowd? Sitting there swilling the beer down run? Hey, did you see those two guys? You ever see those two guys in that commercial where one guy runs into the water and throws the beer can to the other guy running out of the water? You ought to try that sometime. You know, they rehearsed that for over seven weeks before it worked. Well, here he is. He's lying out there, you know, and there's 18,000 people all flat out laying there. Millions. There's a whole crowd down at Coney Island. There's a whole crowd laying outside of the Oak Street Beach in Chicago. There's a bunch of guys at Malibu Beach. Everybody's flat out looking up into the sky at Sunday. When all of a sudden out of the east there appears a faint cloud. A cloud that sparkles. 
There's a few little trailing, wisping, swirling shreds of smoke. And somebody laying there just notices. It's a jet. His eyes go. He looks up again. Looks again. Closes his... Of course, he's got his ear plugged into the Rheingold commercial at this point. <laughs> Lindsay Nelson is trying to make it sound like the Mets are exciting. <laughs> and he's laying there, you know, and suddenly out of the east appears a golden chariot. It is arcing its way over the sky. Higher and higher and higher it goes, trailing smoke. And the golden chariot is being pulled by a winged horse, Pegasus. And in the golden chariot is Mercury, sending out a few little lightning bolts. Whee! He arches past Southern California, and they just think it's a Goldwater campaign bit. And it whistles off into the opposite direction. And it suddenly appears over China. And they got the big pictures of Stalin and Lenin and Mao Zedong and all the other gods of that world. And they're walking around there, you know, being peoples with solidarity. Simple little citizens of a great solidarity movement chopping away next to a picture of Stalin, Mao Zedong. And a guy down there in the rice field looks up. <laughs> and arching over going, swishing towards India is a great golden chariot bearing Mercury, the winged god. You ever seen pictures of Mercury? Have you ever seen it? Uh, yeah. One, oh, <laughs> there speaks a true American. He says on a hubcap. I'll never forget in my in my high school when we were studying American history, poor old Mr. Matson one day brought up the subject of a great American Indian, Pontiac. <laughs> And all the Ford fans got mad in the crowd, you know. They wanted equal time right away. <laughs> so that's fascinating. Yes, on a hubcap, Mercury's got wings on his head, you know. And he's sailing across the sky, and he finally arrives over, over Russia. And there, on a great podium in the Kremlin, Khrushchev is striding about. And they cheer. He thinks it's another you too. And you know what's so... You can see the little Russian anti-aircraft go ping, 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 ping. And Mercury is catching them like ping-pong balls and throwing them up. You know, playing, juggling with the rockets. And it disappears into the night. And the world sits, mulling it over. What would the New York Times say? How would they handle this? 
Would they blame DiSapio? <laughs> or Buckley of the Bronx? How would the Chicago Tribune deal with this? New York and the un-American UN in a cheap, rotten trick sent over the Oak Street Beach yesterday afternoon? Yes. That's what this stone idol is about. Do you want to hear the rest of it? It goes deep. All right, just be quiet, son. You'll hear it. Listen carefully here. Yes, it is a good conversation piece which extends to all sectors of the population. While the scientists are gravely discussing its origin, the man on the street has been arguing that the monolith should never have been put on its feet. <laughs> never thought of that side of it, did you? He was okay while he was laying down. Just stand him on his feet and bring him into town and put him on a podium and look out. There's interesting parallels here. It says he's arguing that maybe they ought to take it back out of town and restore him to his original prone condition. There is another group that argues that this could even be more dangerous. Now, wait a minute. This is the 20th century. These are not... You're laugh. Listen to them laugh. Ha, 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 ha. Ha, 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 ha. Oh, yes, indeed. Um, uh, <clears throat> goes even further. Yes, a dentist commanded two columns in a morning Mexico City newspaper recently discussing whether the idol's facial formation was male or female. There's another little side issue there. The great lady god has arrived on the scene. It's going to take over where Arthur Miller stopped. <laughs> Look out. Statistically, you want to hear now. See, man always reduces it to simple statistics. If you know your God is only 46 feet high, somehow that seems a little less dangerous. Statistically, the rain and water God, in addition to weighing 167 tons, is 24.6 feet high and 13.1 feet wide. Sounds like Smokey Joe. <laughs> I know this guy. It was originally reported to have been carved from unquarried rock where it was found, although archaeologists don't even agree on this point. It is an unknown rock. As with all great archaeological treasures, this one abounds in legends. Now, I have to explain to you what the word legend means. That's a cop-out. Anything you don't want to believe in is called a legend. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Or a myth. For example, one party is saying, we are going to explode the Lyndon Johnson myth. And the other party says, we're going to explode the Barry Goldwater myth. It's very important. The myth concept. It's a nice cop-out. Mercury is a myth. Well, I don't know. None of us really do know whether Thor is a myth. I can just imagine many guys in this crowd, five minutes after the truck hits, down there in the fiery furnaces of hell, trying to explain it away. You know, I don't believe in this. You're standing there in the furnaces burning. Listen to this. 
One legend is that the idol threatened centuries ago that if it were ever moved from its resting place, it would bring a gigantic flood to the entire earth. There is a sore head. <laughs> there is a guy that really wants security. Now, wait a minute. A cartoonist has pictured the huge monolith in water up to its eyebrows with a caption reading in translation, I, glub, glub, I told you so! <laughs> now, I ask you one thing. Have you noticed how much rain we've had lately here in New York? Now, great stone idol. I just wonder how many of us would vote for a great stone idol if it came down the street. Seriously. And how many of us do vote for great stone idols? Rain gods that promise if they don't get stood on their feet, they'll destroy the world. If they don't get transported from one place to the other, they will send out thunderbolts that will knock Hammond, Indiana right off the map. Well, let me tell you, it's a funny thing, this belief in a strange fate. Do you know, historically, throughout American history, one party always feels that if the other party's candidate is elected, they are going to go to Australia to live. <laughs> no, this is always true. I remember guys saying that in 1960. Remember that? I remember guys saying that. I'll never forget sitting in a, in a living room and, and a guy is watching Adley Stevenson give his acceptance speech, and he says, if that guy isn't elected, oh, boy, if that other guy's elected, I'm going to Borneo. Borneo, get my hat. I'm ready to go. That guy is living on East 73rd Street <laughs> right now. And so we always have this thunderbolt myth with us that if one guy's elected, it's going to be beautiful. If the other guy's not elected, it's going to be thunderstorms. How many of you remember the first election you ever voted in? The first one. I mean, national presidential election. Well, I can remember my first election. I'm a kid, see? And I go into the Army, and I'm underage, very definitely underage, for everything. <laughs> which I found out later. I was definitely underage. You know? I mean, Hershey candy bars were very strong stuff. <laughs> you know. And the next thing you know, you're in the Army, and you find out there's a lot of guys doing a lot of stuff that, you know, you only read about or heard about in rotten books, you know, and all kinds of things. And you're in for a while, and you have a sense of being detached from the world. In the Army, you do. You're, you're, you're detached. You have no connection with the newspapers. It, you know, you read stories of people, people, there's always a bunch of nice, friendly people who send you the hometown newspaper, you know, and it says, White Sox drop pair to senators. Well, you know, nothing's changed. <laughs> but you read this, and it's like you're reading the news from Saturn. And no connection with the first sergeant down there, you know. No connection at all with the O.D. 
No connection with the, with the supply room down there. Nothing. Your whole world is contained, you see. And they began then to send me newspapers about the election. It was a big thing going on. And the president was campaigning. Now remember, he was the president of the world that all of us had known. It was our world, you know. This was the only world we knew. He was the president. And this other guy was running. And so guys are walking around, you know, and they're saying things like, gee, you know, once in a while somebody would say something about the election. And nobody really wanted to talk about it. Because it seemed like if this election was lost, thunderbolts would come down and destroy the day room. Yeah. Or a panzer division would arrive or something, you know, someplace. And so everybody's walking around. And then Yank Magazine. Do any of you remember Yank Magazine? What a, what a paper. Gee, that was a wild paper. They had some great cartoons. I'll never forget one cartoon, the Sad Sack. Do you remember Sad Sack laying in his bunk? In one cartoon, he's lying there, and all of a sudden you see this big smile on his face. He's laying there for about a minute and a half, all three little strips. You know, he's grinning. All of a sudden, he jumps up, and he's putting on his shoes. He puts on his coat, and he's running down the street, and he gets to this place where they got a green light. It says, two hours. He just made it. And it was called the dream. Yeah, you better explain that to her on the way out. Well, this was the kind of paper it was. And then they had an editorial, and it said the GIs in the Army would be allowed to vote. And I had just made it. Just made it. My first election. It said ballots will be distributed by mail and will be sent to the day rooms and to the last command of wherever the armed forces member was stationed. It said, and it went on further, do you remember it? It said that they will take the age and all the statistics from the draft records and every guy over voting age would get one of these things. And almost every guy I knew had been like eight years old when he went in the army. You know? <laughs> and now all of a sudden here he is. You know, you don't think of yourself as voting age or anything. I suppose when you're a civilian you do. When you're in the army, you're just in the army. Everybody's the same age in the army. They're just all soldiers, you know, all here. And so we began to walk around thinking about this. And then the big day arrived. The first sergeant blew the whistle, and everybody fell out. And the captain is standing up there, and he says, Men, I suppose you think... You've been called out here on some kind of a detail. Yeah. I mean, this is bad news right away. We have just received the ballots for the presidential election. I hope you guys know what this means. You are all Americans. You have a responsibility to vote. And I'm not going to tell you how to vote. You hear? And I don't want nobody to say later, I told you how to vote. He's got these two big silver bars. However, <laughs> you know who's running, don't you? The president is running. 
the commander in chief, my boss. I like my job. You like your job, huh? Let me tell you, everybody in the Army knew, no matter how rotten his job was, there were 50 worse. So when you're knee-deep in the grease pits, your 18th day on KP, you know that there is one step lower. You don't know where it is. You know it. Guys would cling to the worst stuff. All right, now, you got a responsibility to think about this election. Now... Sergeant Scranlon is going to be in the day room to answer any questions about the election campaign. He's going to answer any questions about any political ideas that you may be unclear on. Sergeant Scranlon, by the way, spent all of his time telling us the nomenclature of the M1. He had it all down. He's got this bull neck, these thick glasses that look like the back ends of these ever-ready spotlights. And so he's standing there smiling. He says, all right, men, you will now be given your ballots. The duty corporal will read out your name. When you get your name, take your ballot and mark. Take it immediately in the day room and talk to the sergeant. He'll clear up all the problems. Any questions? None. And with that, one by one, we each get our little ballot. We open it up. Do you know how exciting it is to get your first ballot? What a sensation. And it has a big return envelope. You seal it in. And you're voting for the President of the United States. And all of a sudden, for that one brief instant, we were all back in that world out there. We really were. It's a strange moment. And all the guys are sort of standing in the company street, you know, on that crummy, rutted, rotten, muddy street. A couple of guys go in their barracks, and three or four other guys go in the day room. We sort of stand outside a latrine, and I say to Gasser, who are you going to vote for? I don't know. I don't know. Now, I've been a little concerned over... Rising income taxes. <laughs> He's getting a cool $16 a month. <laughs> Less laundry. I mean. And so one by one, we all file past Sergeant Scranlon, who's sitting at the crap table. And he says, any questions? Nope. Each one of us goes in and puts his little mark, folds it up, seals it, Hands it to the captain, who is standing there with a loaded 45 to see that nobody tampered with them ballots. We gave each one, and as we went out, the captain says, Thank you, American. I'm telling you what he did. Thank you, American, for voting. And we walked out, and each one of us, PFCs, T5s, corporals, T4s, fed six feet, seven inches tall. The sky was blue, and the president was elected again. This is WOR Radio, your station for news.